Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you have promised that the word that goes out from your mouth will not return to you empty, but will accomplish the purpose for which you've sent it. And so we pray now that you would accomplish the good purposes in the hearts of your people through the preaching of your word this evening. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. If you'll please open your Bibles now to our sermon text. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. We looked at Isaiah chapter 7 this morning, the prophecy of uh, Emmanuel, which Jesus fulfilled. And tonight we'll be looking at Isaiah chapter 9, another prophecy of the coming Christ. In the Pew Bibles, page 573. So Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. But there will be no gloom for, who, for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. When I was young, one of my favorite things about the holiday season was that every morning, When I woke up and I would come out of my room into the living room, the room would already be lit up with the lights of the Christmas tree. It was that time of the year in December when normally the house would be cold and dark when I got up in the morning. But instead, the lights were already on. And of course, they reminded me each morning that it was Christmas time. Or, well, Christmas was coming. This was the season of joy and of celebration as we remembered the coming of our Savior. This evening, we have gathered together to remember the first coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we do so with the symbolic lighting of candles to represent how he is the light of the world. And we come to one of the quintessential passages in the whole Bible about Christ's light breaking forth into the darkness. It comes from the prophet Isaiah, written more than 700 years before Christ's birth, and yet it speaks so clearly about both his birth and his identity. 
is so clearly that we could even call this his birth announcement. Only the all-knowing, the all-powerful God who is in control of all of history could announce the birth of his son more than 700 years ahead of time. And then in his perfect timing, bring forth his son, born of a virgin, fulfilling not only this prophecy, but many more as well. As Christ fulfills this prophecy, he was not only shining light into the gloomy darkness when he was born, but he continues to shine that light into the world today. He is light and life for all who will receive him. And it is his light that we celebrate every year at Christmas time. This evening, as we meditate on this passage, I'll first spend some time looking at how, he, how his light has shone into our gloomy darkness. And then I want to spend the majority of our time tonight looking at the source of this light, the coming child, and this fourfold title that is given to him in verse 6. So first tonight, in gloomy darkness, a light has shone. Reading again verses 1 and 2. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Now these first two verses of Isaiah chapter 9 are quite evocative with their use of this imagery of darkness and light. And this imagery, it goes back to the very beginning of the Bible when God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God separated the light from the darkness. Then as we move forward into the scriptures, forward through the history of God's work of redemption, we see that Light becomes a symbol of all that is good, goodness, and life, and knowledge. While darkness, on the other hand, becomes a symbol of sin, of death, of the lack of knowledge, a symbol of ignorance. Isaiah here speaks of Zebulun, of Naphtali, and of Galilee. This is the northern region in the land of Israel. And when Isaiah wrote this, this region had recently been conquered by the Assyrian Empire. It wouldn't be long before the majority of the Israelites in this region would be deported and foreigners would be resettled there. And that's why Isaiah calls it Galilee of the nations. He speaks of its darkness, the contempt it had suffered because of the way it had been conquered. And yet even in this place, where there is little knowledge of the Lord, where there is the darkness of sin and ignorance, that is where the light begins to shine. It is where darkness is deepest that a light shining forth penetrates with greatest brilliancy. And we know how this prophecy is fulfilled because it is quoted for us in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. For it's there that we learn that Jesus Christ begins his ministry in the town of Capernaum on the shores of Lake Galilee. In this very region, Christ was the great light shining in the darkness as he began to teach, to preach the good news of the gospel and to work miracles. And Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John eight twelve. 
Jesus came to bring light to our darkness, to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, as he said in his very first sermon based on Isaiah chapter 61. As we continue in Isaiah 9, we see these same things laid out in verses 3 through 5. And this, these verses describe what it looks like to go from darkness to light and how it is accomplished. I want to, these verses describe, uh, they, they deserve a, a sermon of their own. I'll just touch briefly on them because I want to spend the majority of our time tonight on verse 6. Verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. You see here that God's people have received many good things, but the key to it, all the source of it all, is the Lord. He is the source of all these blessings, even as he is the source of the light that is dawned. Then verse four speaks of how he does this by setting his people free, setting them free from oppression, just like he did when he rescued his people out of their bondage in Egypt, or just as he did when he led Gideon, to deliver the people from their oppression at the hands of the Midianites. Then verse 5 speaks of how he does this by putting an end to warfare. Now the complete fulfillment of these verses, verses 4 and 5 in particular, it still awaits the second coming of Christ. For we know that in the world we live in today, all warfare has not ended, all oppression has not ceased. That awaits Christ's second coming. Now, verses 4 and 5, they both start with the word for. They give partial explanations, the initial explanations of how God will work this deliverance from darkness to light by delivering his people from oppression and warfare. But the foundational explanation is given in verse 6. So let's now turn our attention here. Verse 6, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now this verse is a prophecy of the coming of a divine king. Now first of all, it tells us how he will come. And it will not be as you might expect God to come. You might expect God to descend from the heavens in all his divine glory and to immediately overthrow all his enemies and to assume power for himself. If I were God, that's how I would do it. But that is not how God comes. Rather, he is born in humility as an infant. He is born as the son of an ordinary woman. And yet, as we saw this morning, this is an extraordinary birth, for it is a virgin birth. He has no earthly human father, for he is truly the Son of God. He is both born a child, as it says, and yet also given as a son. For this is the Father's greatest gift to mankind. As you know, the verse, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. 
Though he is born in humility, it also says here, he will reign. The government shall be upon his shoulder. And that is part of how we will be set free from oppression and warfare. For as we'll see, his kingdom will be of a different kind. A kingdom that expands through peace rather than through warfare. It is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of the gospel. Not a kingdom with armies and borders, but a kingdom ruled by love. Expanded through the preaching of the word of God. Now let's look at this fourfold name that is given to him. As we look at these four names, we realize this is not a personal name that's given to the Messiah, but rather these are royal titles that are given to this king who is to come. They teach us about his identity and his character, who he is and what he will do. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. The first term here, wonderful, it's a far more lofty term than how we would regularly use this today. Recall that in the Bible, wonders are miracles. They refer to the supernatural, that which is beyond our comprehension. That which is wonderful evokes awe in the beholder. It causes one to marvel. And so a wonderful counselor is one who possesses divine, supernatural wisdom. As we read on in Isaiah, there's another prophecy concerning the Messiah that predicts this very thing. Isaiah 11, 1 through 2. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Note also the second term in this title, counselor, It's also not used here as we regularly use it today. Often today, if you're having personal problems, you go to see a counselor, and appropriately so. But in Isaiah's day, the only person who would have counselors would be the king. The king had counselors. But here we have a king who is his own wonderful counselor. He is so wise that he needs no one to give him counsel. And this is all confirmed in the New Testament, where we read Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1.24. And then a few verses later, verse 30, Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. And just one more, Colossians 2.3. Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Because Jesus is the wonderful counselor, He is the one you can turn to when you need wisdom. There is no quandary too hard for him. No question that he cannot answer. He possesses all the the, the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is the wonderful counselor. Second, we're told here that he is mighty God. The second name couldn't be more clearly a divine title. But just to explain it a bit, this term mighty can also be translated heroic, powerful, or strong. It is the Lord's power to act, to accomplish his purposes. Nothing can thwart his will. This same title is applied directly to God the Father in the very next chapter, Isaiah 10, verse 21. The Lord is also described this way in Deuteronomy 10, 17. 
For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God. And also Nehemiah 9.32, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Now, this describes God the Father, but it also, as we see here, describes his son, Jesus Christ. Even though he comes in humility, he is born as a child, and he comes in submission to his Father's will, he remains Almighty God. On the cross, many mocked him as if he could not save himself. But the truth is that though he was able, he chose not to save himself, for he willingly laid down his life to save his people from his sins. This is a title that no mere human would dare to take to himself. But the title is given to Jesus Christ here in this prophetic birth announcement. Though he comes in humility as a child, he remains always mighty God. Third, we see here he is everlasting father. This title, it might confuse you at first because it speaks of Christ not in terms of the Trinity. It's not identifying him as God the father, but in the sense that a true king serves as a loving father to all those who are under his care. A good king is one who defends justice for the poor, for the fatherless, for the widow, thus serving as father to the whole nation. And this is exactly how Christ cares for his people. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Psalm 68, 5. And here we see he is not just a father, but an everlasting father. And this lines up with what we see in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Jesus Christ, being eternal God, has always been and always will be. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Psalm 90, verse 2. Jesus Christ is eternal, everlasting, and this must be so. For only if Jesus is eternal can he also be the one who gives us eternal life. And in this role as everlasting Father, can you go to him and find great comfort and security? Whether you are young or you are old enough to be a father or even a grandfather, you still need Jesus, the everlasting Father, to care for you, to watch out for you, to comfort you, to care for your soul. He is the everlasting Father. And fourth, he is called the Prince of Peace. So we come to this title. It's helpful to know that in the Bible, Prince is not necessarily refer only to the son of a king, like in our speech today, but it's simply another term for a leader. So a king can also be called a prince. And here we have the prince of peace. Now you may recall that David's son Solomon, his name means peace. So he was perhaps one prince of peace. And David was the man of war, but Solomon was a man of rest and peace. But he can only give a temporary peace, only a civil peace among the nations. But now here comes one greater than Solomon, a far greater prince of peace, 
to fulfill all that God had promised to David, of which Solomon had fallen so far short. The Lord Jesus Christ comes to establish peace, not just on earth, but peace between sinners and a holy God. As Isaiah goes on to write in chapter 53, verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. At Christ's birth, the heavenly host of angels appears to the shepherds to declare glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Luke 2.14 For Christ came to establish peace, peace between God and all those who receive the gospel of his peace. And so we read in Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the most important thing of supreme importance is to being reconciled with God, to no longer be an enemy of God, but to have peace with God. That is the most important thing. But Jesus also gives us a subjective peace of the heart. He sets our hearts at rest. For example, as he says in John 16, 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Furthermore, as he serves as our great high priest, he is always interceding for us. And we learn to pray in his name. And as we do so, praying with thanksgiving, we experience the peace that passes understanding, which guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus, Philippians 4, 7. And so Christ Jesus is the Prince of peace. After this glorious fourfold title, our passage concludes with verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Here we see this government with the peace that he brings it will increase without end until it fills all of creation for in the end he must rule over all things we also see here confirmed that he will be a ruler in the line of david and that he will rule as you might expect with justice and righteousness and as is only fitting from all the defined titles that we will see this kingdom it will be an everlasting one from this time forth and forevermore. In conclusion, we see how this will come about. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This won't happen by accident. It will happen because the Lord himself will accomplish it. And why? Because out of his zeal to, his zeal, his desire to uphold his promises and his eternal purposes, he must do this. He will send his Messiah, his own beloved son, to bring his people from darkness to light, to save us from our sins. We see this as we're reading Isaiah from his perspective looking forward. But now we look back and we say, this he has done. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ 
The child was born. The son was given. The light of the world came and he shone into the gloomy darkness. And he continues to shine today. And so I ask you tonight, have you seen his light? Has his light pierced into your heart? When his light shines upon you, it will reveal you for who you are. That you are more sinful than you ever dared to imagine. But the, the gospel also proclaims that out of love for you, Christ bore all that sin on the cross. And if you are trusting in him, he takes it all away. And he covers you with his own righteousness. All you need to do is forsake your sin. Trust not in your own righteousness to save you. Trust in Christ and him alone. He is the wonderful counselor to whom you can bring all your questions, all your doubts, and he has the answers. He has the wisdom that you need. He is the mighty God in whose strength and power you can trust to guard and protect you and to shelter you in this life and the next. He is the everlasting Father who binds up all your wounds and leads you through this life, who also, like a wise and gentle Father, discipline you so that you grow in holiness to be like Him. And He is the Prince of Peace, a leader who has conquered not by warfare but by love, by laying down His own life on the cross. In so doing, He has conquered sin and death and risen to a new and everlasting life. And now he reigns forevermore as the Prince of Peace at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. This is the one whose birth we celebrate this time of year. Is he your Messiah? Is he your Savior and your God? If you are not trusting him already, the, the greatest gift you can receive this Christmas is the gift of eternal life, the gift that Jesus Christ gives to all who trust in him. Turn away from trusting in yourself and look to Jesus Christ. Receive his gift today. And if you already know this gift of his light and life, then share this good news with others. For this is what we celebrate at Christmas, that Christ has come. His light has shone into our darkness he has come once to die for our sins and rise to new life. And we are eagerly waiting for his second coming when he will come again and make all things new. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, how we give you thanks and praise for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. On one hand, it amazes us that you announced his birth 700 years ahead of time. But at the same time, what a small thing this must be for you who know the end from the beginning, you who are sovereign over all of history. As we continue to meditate on Christ's fourfold title, we pray that we would come to know him more and to love him more and to trust him more so that we might serve and glorify Christ our Savior, for it's in his name we pray, amen.